Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And if I'm really lucky, then people will listen, or maybe they'll read, and it will be agreed. Though my life was starlit, these years were a pit of hurt for me. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so that you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. I'm your host, Patrick Beeman. This week's episode is brought to you by Universal Notes, myuniversalnotes.com. One student said, Universal Notes is a great study tool for students. Between the study content, available study plans, and question bank, it has everything you need for your most efficient studying for clinical rotations. Check out myuniversalnotes.com and stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out how you can win a three-month premium subscription to Universal Notes by entering this podcast contest. And all our listeners can get a free trial subscription to everything myuniversalnotes.com has to offer by going to their website and signing up for details check out insidetheboards.com slash episode 007 today's guest is dr aaron mcguffin dr mcguffin is a former associate dean for medical student education at marshall university and is now the medical director for the GME and residency programs at King's Daughters Medical Center. He is, in addition, the senior editor and founder of Universal Notes. Aaron, thanks for being on the show. Oh, Patrick, thank you so much for the opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. For most of our podcasts, we have come up with a plan to go through some of the USMLE bulletin sample questions and this week's question is from the pediatrics category since you are a pediatrician so i will read this here and then we can discuss it great a two-month-old infant has a five centimeter strawberry hemangioma on the cheek that is increasing in size no other lesions are noted which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management a observation of the lesion b solid carbon dioxide application to the lesion, C, intralesional corticosteroid treatment, D, laser therapy to the lesion, and E, surgical removal of the lesion. You might want to pause the podcast now to think about those options. And the answer is A, observation of the lesion. All right, so Aaron, if you were a step two student right now taking your test and this question came across your screen, how would you approach it? Well, with every single question, I think the very first thing that I like to teach the students is, is to, of course, take every piece of information and begin to create your differential diagnosis immediately based on every single piece of information. So for me, the first thing I see is the fact that it's a two-month-old patient. And the first thing that I begin to do is consciously and subconsciously at this point, I already have a list of potential diseases just in general before I even completed the vignette that start to go through my brain that the question can possibly be going towards. 
And after you've looked at thousands and thousands of them, you know that the list of potential diagnoses for a two-month-old, you know, you know, probably less than 100. And so sure. you, you start to work that way. And especially with pediatric questions, they are giving you an age that will be a classical age for the presentation. Uh, the one thing that I think is very important to for all students to know is that they are not trying to trick you with the age on these questions. They will give you the age that is definitely within the strike zone of where that presentation is going to be. I think some students try to overthink the question a little bit and say, well, occasionally you can see X or Y in this age group. They're going to give you the age right there and right where it belongs. So that's the first thing. And I think it's extraordinarily important to, to start there because that's going to immediately narrow down your differential. Well, in this question, they're, they're going right out and giving you the diagnosis. So they're going straight into the diagnosis of a hemangioma. And of course, hemangiomas are extraordinarily common in infants. And the next piece of information, as soon as I see that mangioma is where is it because that is really going to dictate from a question standpoint what you're going to do with it and if it matters and so they give you the cheek to some degree this is a very uh, subtle trickiness to it because I would want to actually see where it was located on the cheek because theoretically in real clinical practice that could matter uh, with this particular disease process. And we know they increase in size. And so that's really one of the things that they're asking from a knowledge standpoint is, do you recognize the natural history progression of a hemangioma? And so that's sort of one of the knowledge checks is, do you know that it's supposed to get bigger? And that may be something to trip up students that may say, oh my gosh, it's, it's getting bigger. We've got to do something. They do mention that no other lesions are noted, which can be a very important piece of information because in, like in most things in medicine, uh, multiple things beget more things. We often say endocrine begets endocrine. So uh, it's very similar. If you have multiple hemangiomas externally, there's also an increased chance you could have them internally as well. Um, and so then they follow, of course, is, well, what are you going to do about it? And so that, of course, simply asks, is, do you know how to handle a, a hemangioma on a patient? The part that makes this a little tricky for me and this is probably where I overthink as an attending physician level, is we know that if they obstruct the airway or if they obstruct vision, you can't leave them alone. You do need a referral to let somebody who specializes in those lesions. So I would probably be making a mental note of, man, I wish they would have told me that was on the neck or somewhere where I definitely, or, or somewhere that definitely wouldn't have potentially obstructed vision. Um, and then you begin, of course, to march through the choices to say, well, what do you normally do with these? And typically what you normally do with hemangiomas is you, is you watch them. And that has been a typical treatment plan for a long time of note. And this is obviously one of the things that students have to start to begin to aware of is it's management changes over time. And hemangiomas are going to be one of those things that at some point this question is actually going to change because they're actually almost routinely now starting to use propranolol uh, in patients uh, to begin to shrink these lesions down. I've had several of my patients go on that therapy. It'll be interesting to see how, how long it takes before that actually this becomes a uh, practice question that gets kicked out when they've made those changes. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So I think you make some good points here, though, because I, I know myself now as an attending as well, and working in the sort of question review world, the the tendency, I think, is to 
take one's specialist knowledge and apply it to, in either editing or authoring one's own questions, what a medical student needs to know. And it often requires being very conscious of who your audience is in constructing a question. And I often ask myself if I'm editing or writing something, who is this? Is this a a third-year medical student or a fourth-year medical student, like this question would be, I think that the question could take on a different form and certainly have other answers if this were, for instance, the in-service pediatrics examination for residents or even the board exam that you guys take at the end of your pediatrics residencies. And knowing for medical students especially who approach these sorts of things is You really don't have to know everything. The boards, as I often will say, they try to make medicine a black and white mathematical science, when in reality, it's not at all black and white. Yes, you know, it's an excellent observation, which is you can't add stuff to the question. The the question is what it is. And if there was other information that they were going to, they wanted to use, they would put it in the question. And, And they purposely don't put that it's obstructing vision because they're not wanting you to go down some of those other roads. And so you have to take the question on face value. And again, don't overthink it. What is the normal management for this process? And so observation is currently going to be the best board answer. As soon as you throw your clinical acumen in there, as you know, you know, in many clinical situations, if you ask three pediatricians or three obstetricians how to manage almost anything sometimes simply, you can easily get three distinct different answers. Yes, that I think is is indeed what makes the boards challenging and frightening or anxiety provoking to a certain degree for a lot of medical students. But I think the advice, how you, you put it, not to overthink things makes a lot of sense. And, and it's probably something you have to train yourself to do. I guess my advice, uh, you know, how not to overthink things would be to mark questions after you've taken, say, a practice set of them, the ones that you may have been overthinking and gotten wrong, and really do a postmortem on that question and find the root as to why you indeed went down the road of picking the distractor that was keyed as wrong instead of the correct one. And I think keeping a mental list and doing that sort of intellectual exercise is probably instructive and help training your brain to recognize the patterns of, or or the, the depth to which you're required to know certain categories of knowledge or, or topics. Any other high-yield points you can think on uh, strawberry hemangiomas for us? Well, I think, at least from a step two, two standpoint, that that's probably going to be the, the most likely question they're going to ask is, is, is how do you manage those? Certainly, the possibility of them showing you a classical picture of one of those um, and asking you, what is this? Uh, could certainly be a, an easy question to write. That would be a fair question because it is a nice physical exam question as well. And I think those probably, are, you'd probably have your arms around the most common uh, two questions they possibly could ask you on uh, hemangiomas that would be reasonable. This is probably the question you would get or one related to uh, recognizing its appearance in a picture. 
on your step two or maybe a shelf exam or something like that. You don't, when reading about strawberry hemangiomas, when it comes to your board preparation, have to know everything. You don't necessarily have to know the most common location or how fast it grows or the fact that they tend to go away on their own by eight years old and then try to remember all that. That's too overwhelming. All you would have to know if somebody said strawberry hemangioma would be treat it with observation and be able to recognize it in a picture and you'll probably get most questions related to this correct. So you like questions, I assume, since you started uh, Universal Notes, which we'll get into a little bit uh, later. But where did you go to school and train? Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. I, I have uh, actually been a Huntington Marshall person pretty much my entire career. I did do my undergraduate at Eastern Kentucky University and snuck down there and played some college tennis for a while and had a wonderful time down there. I uh, came back and uh, did my medical school at Marshall, uh, went on into a medicine pediatric residency, uh, primarily because I didn't know what I wanted to be. And all I knew was I liked everything. And so med peds was sort of one of those good options for me. And I, I just knew I could not go without seeing kids my entire career. Uh, so that's where I stuck. And I sort of had a penchant more for inpatient medicine at that time, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is sort of what separated me out from choosing family medicine. And I really wanted a, an intense pediatric experience, especially in the NICU and the PICU. And, and I think that's eventually where I settled. Uh, once I graduated from residency in 2003, I joined the faculty at Marshall and was part of the medical education. I'll call it a movement at Marshall at that time. And we didn't officially have a department then and then practiced clinical medicine and pediatrics together for nearly a decade. And then over the last uh, second half of my career, I have been mostly medical education and pediatric clinical practice. So you went to residency prior to the ACGME reforms. In fact, I believe it was the year after I quit, all of a sudden you could only work 80 to 90 hours a week. So how, how much did that sting? It's an interesting topic. And I, I will say that I felt the fact that I was challenged to keep myself going um, for up to sometimes 100, 120 hours a week. Uh, allowed me to see the evolution of disease processes. It allowed me to see the evolution of treatment and management. It allowed me to understand that if there were catastrophic events that we were required to spend time beyond what we thought we normally could do to handle large um, patient sicknesses and so forth, I could do that. There were times that I literally fell asleep writing orders in the emergency room. There were times when I think my thinking was not as clear as it should have been. I have mixed feelings about it because I think there were some wonderful benefits of having, for lack of a better word, your your butt kicked as a resident. But at the same time, I do think at, at certain points that patient care uh, sort of it tipped over a little bit. So I, it, it's... Like everything in, in life, I think there's a uh, moderation. I mean, having trained post-2003, but prior to the intern work restriction limiting them to 16 hours per call shift, I think that in the thick of things, when the med student would say, did you just fall asleep? And I'd be like, 
I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe. That's definitely possible. Of course, I chose OBGYN, so I, I chose my poison. But I do think that the length of time on call did add to my education, especially looking back. In the thick of it, it, it didn't seem very educational, but having the perspective of being out a couple of years from residency, I definitely think that that, that ability to take call right out of the gate when there was so much excitement still being a doctor for the first time definitely added to the educational experience and has some benefits that uh, maybe others don't get to experience now with some of the limitations. So in medical school specifically, what were boards like for you? They were long. (laughs) (laughs) As I recall, I'm pretty sure step one was two full days. Mm. Um, I I feel like it was close to like twice as large as what it is now you know, in the 700 range. I mean, there was, it was two full days and a ton of questions. It was very intimidating. It was very tiring, very anxiety provoking for sure. And we, you know, we sort of uh, had, I guess, some review sources that we used back then. A lot of the instruction was, you know, go back and read your notes, Yeah, which is a daunting type of thing to do to, to try to, where do you start when you have literally 12 feet of notes uh, in binders in your bedroom? Where do you even begin? But there were some review books, obviously, and, and we began to to try to do the best we could to try to prepare in, in the weaknesses. We actually, at Marshall, we actually had a board review course that was done by a gentleman named Dr. James Fix. And uh, Dr. Fix actually taught at Marshall. He actually authored several of the review books. Yeah, BRS, Board Review Series. Does that sound correct? He did Neuroanatomy. Neuroanatomy, that was it. And, and so he actually pulled in several of his uh, his buddies uh, to come in and do about a four-week course in Huntington. And I think that was probably the one thing that saved me. Now, Dr. Fix himself was, I think, about six levels above it. I don't know about everybody, but certainly me when he when he did taught neuro. And so it was one of those things where, you know, he'd be flying through those tracks and so forth. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think that that type of intense review, it did did help me uh, muster a passing score on that exam at that particular time. In medical school or or even before, were the, did you ever have any sort of like test taking failures? Had you questioning your choice in a career path? And the, the first time I ever failed anything was in medical school. And I, I was like many of my classmates was one of those kids who, of course, was an overachiever in high school, college athlete, very high GPA, thought you could do anything in life. And then, then you walk into med school and now you're at that time, we had about, I think, maybe 50 or 60 of us in a very small class. You know, we're, we're now, you know, a, <clears throat> a small fish in a bigger pond. And I was very young when I entered med school. I think I was 20. And um, I thought I could continue the same study patterns that I had used, continue to exercise and do all the things I was accustomed to. I had actually just gotten married at that time as well and had a young child. And when you combine all of those social situations in my, my youth, it, it was a uh, wonderful formula uh, for being humbled. And I remember, I remember driving, uh, one of my friends was driving uh, us to our first respiratory physiology exam, and I had a full-blown panic attack 
for basically the board question 30 minutes. So might as well learn something out of this experience. So it was a full 30 minutes and, and, and it extended into at least the first 25, 30 questions of the respiratory physiology exam. <laughs> and I think I ended up getting like a 42% on that exam. And I, I knew the professor pretty well socially. And he called me in. He's like, McGuffin, what in the world happened to you? And I said, I have no idea. I don't even remember taking the examination. It, it was the first time I, I had ever failed at anything. And I, I think from a spiritual standpoint, it, it humbled me and made me sort of go back to the roots of my faith of who I was and was I where I was supposed to be. And oh my gosh, I, I, I can't figure out interpleural pressure from interthoracic pressure and what's negative and positive and what's supposed to expand and what's supposed to contract. And, and I just, I can't do this. And I think what was ultimately born out of that failure for me was I need to figure out how to teach myself this material in a better way, because I, I wasn't learning it in a way that I could apply it certainly clinically, but in the immediate need to answer the questions correctly on the examination. And I think it's that experience that began to push me to start thinking about what is medical education? What is teaching? What is the transfer of information? And, and how did diagrams play into that? And, you know, and those sorts of things. I, it was a very, like, like most people in life, when they get rejected or have a rejection happen, uh, it creates something new in them that wasn't there before. And, and for me, it was that, that inquiry, that consciousness of how important it was to actually figure out how to learn stuff that you were not comfortable with. That's interesting. Let me ask you this then. Do you think, had you not had that experience of failure, and I, and I appreciate you being so candid and, and sharing that. I know in general, a lot of people in medical education and physicians in general don't like to advertise failures, but had you not failed that exam and say you had just passed, do you think overall you may actually have done worse in medical school? Yeah, I don't think there there's any question, at least, you know, for me. And and just like a patient, as a medical student slash doctor now, I'm an N of one. And for me, that experience, without a doubt, made me a better student. And then it eventually made me, I, I really feel a better physician, especially as I struggle through anxiety and, and other things. Because once you fail a test, it's, it's a wonderful self-perpetuating process. Uh, especially it's it's one, it's kind of almost like a PTSD version. And so you just like, oh, okay, test equals panic equals failure. And it's, it's a very challenging cycle, but it, yeah. it, it was something that I, having worked with students for over 15 years, I, I understand what they go through um, personally. And I understand what they go through observationally. And this is just a rite of passage for becoming a physician and sharpening yourself and learning to deal with inevitable stresses uh, of being a doctor. So it's 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 a healthy, painful experience is probably the best way I can think of describing it. So you had mentioned in that little uh, anecdote there that uh, you learned the importance of really diagramming information. And it sounds like you maybe changed not only your approach to study, but also how you approached the information in general. Is that kind of maybe where 
Universal Notes really became an, an embryo, or was that a completely different process? It's probably hard to separate it out. Sure. I think the concept of the teaching concept and the learning process were things that I really began to think about at that stage of my career. When I became a third and fourth year med student, um, I would often hold review sessions for step one. And so that was sort of a, just a passion of, of being able to go back and teach a little bit, and, which I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed taking complex concepts and, and trying to find ways to make them easier for people to understand. And, and of course, I always said, I, you know, I'm able to do this because of my own ignorance. You know, I'm, I'm explaining it to you because in a way that's easy for me to understand, because, it, you know, I'm not considered myself to be a very intelligent physician compared to some of my colleagues who could just pick up information and just apply it just ridiculously very fast. The one thing I do consider myself is a very hard worker and, and very determined. And so those elements of my study habits, I think, overcame, you know, some of the other issues with with some of these brilliant we all have these brilliant colleagues who like don't even study and they're you know it's like, how in the world do you pull this off um i was not that that guy i really had to work hard at it so the nidus i think for universal notes began to percolate more as a administrator and faculty member and member of the medical education department at marshall when you're a student you have a perspective on what's going on around you that is distinctly different than what your perspective is when you are a medical education dean administrator. It is, they are light years apart. And I began as in that position, obviously, to sort of be the central hub for all things complaining. So <laughs> Uh, if anything went wrong in the educational milieu, I was the food chain that was at the top of that that got to hear all that flack. And so now I began to draw back to my experience as a medical student, and now I'm seeing it from the other side, and I began to make mental notes of Man, that's, well, that's, yeah, it'd be good if we could fix that. Yeah, well, it'd be good if we could fix that. And you be begin just to start to see patterns of problems and, and issues and, and gaps and redundancies and things within the curriculum that I began to inventory, um, at least mentally, during that time. And that's, that is when Universal Notes, not specifically the, the word Universal Notes or that as a, as a branding concept, but just the, the notion of how do you fix all this stuff that everybody seems to be complaining about, not just at Marshall, but everywhere around the country, students uniformly. Universally, if you will. Yes, will have the same issues with professors, with notes with dissemination of information, recording of lectures, I mean, on and on and on. So we were not unique. And so as a company, Universal Notes was founded in 2011, is that correct? The process itself was probably 2013. We began percolating the ideas through there, probably way back even 2006 and 7 and 8, began to start to think about I mean, there is some point, I'm not sure where it was in, in my continuum of, of the deanship of the, the medical curriculum, where I finally said to myself, 
I need to create something that can fix every one of these problems in medical education. And honestly, even though it sounded funny and like impossible when you say it, I don't think my soul thought I was kidding. I think my soul said, no, you, you really can create something that can fix every one of these problems that you hear the students complaining about, that you hear the faculty having issues with, that you can, uh, that the liaison committee for medical education is expecting you to be able to, to take care of and so forth. I, I really believe my soul was convinced that, that I could create something that could fix all this stuff and it just needed some time to to brew in my brain to figure out what that looked like and how that would end up rolling out technologically. So what are some of the pain points that you got the pleasure of filtering as the, the dean of uh, medical education or the medical curriculum that, that students brought to you that Universal Notes has solved? The list is, is pretty long. I won't make you list them all. One of the biggest complaints that the students would bring is simply one of consistency of content. Professor X, their notes are wonderful. They have the best diagrams. It's in a nice PDF. Da -da. Professor Y, he makes us take notes. He'll ask questions that aren't in the notes, you know, gasp. There's spelling errors and there's punctuation things. And, and, and he says something that's different than what the other professor said about some entity. And we don't know how to make it black or white. We don't know what's on the test and those sorts of things. So the inconsistency of the material from professor to professor, from course to course, from block to block was, was one of the first issues. There is not a good checks and balances for the material that is being taught to medical students. And it's kind of one of those, <clears throat> the emperor has no clothes concepts. Because of that, you're not going to have a curriculum content system that is going to be as well vetted as frankly, the students deserve and the public deserves for their students to be educated. Do you think that uh, Universal Notes has the potential then to point medical education towards a more consistent uh, style and content uh, curriculum throughout the country for undergraduate medical education? There's a wonderful editorial that just came out in academic medicine from Dan London, and I would encourage every student to, to take a peek at that. And we've actually referenced it on our Twitter page and Facebook page for Universal Notes. And Dan actually mentioned Universal Notes, along with some other companies, a couple of years ago at the AAMC meeting. And he was talking about disruptors of medical education sort of as a concept. And what he was what he is driving at in the editorial is that we are we are raising up a group of medical students who have become master test takers, but not necessarily critical thinkers and physician ready students. And it's one of those things that you don't really like to hear that. But at the end of the day, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth right now. Why does Kaplan exist? Why does Firecracker exist? Why do the USMLE review books exist? And Dan's um, article references one of their studies, which is very, it's very damning because the results of it basically say that the students do not rely on the medical education they are given in years one and two 
to pass their step one exam. Yes. They are going to review materials from these commercial companies to feel more secure that they are getting the material they need to pass the examination. Academic medicine is a very slow changing entity. It's a very curriculum committees are, they don't make decisions quickly. They like to think about things for a long period of time. And I think that can be detrimental to progress in the student's education. Who should use universal notes? The one thing that I think people need to understand about universal notes is that to some degree, it is a chameleon entity. It can be to some, all things to all people, and that's what we are pushing it towards. I think it can be a step one review source. I think it can be a step two review source. And of course, that it also doubles for complex material as well. Institutions could use it for specific courses. They could use it as study guides for their students to, to prepare, especially for clerkships and fourth years. And I really think it has a lot of value for what I really consider one of the most underserved populations of medical students, which are the remediators. Um, I have yet to hear an example of a medical school that has figured out how to handle remediation in a very effective way. I think a lot of schools don't know how to handle remediators, and they sort of say, well, why don't you go study harder, which obviously is not exactly a very intentional plan. We have the ability with Universal Notes to customize and specify for a school a very guided plan for how that student would remediate that material. The, the one piece that I think separates Universal Notes from a lot of the other entities in the space is that we have the material, but we push the students not to just read the material, but to really demonstrate that they understand what they have just read and to understand it on multiple levels, not just through multiple choice questions, but our assessments that are attached to our material also push towards open-ended questions. They push towards patient encounter experience. They push toward making drawings, making charts, and uploading those to the system. Um, they make you prove that you've read it. They make you also create your own objectives for the material, pushing the student to say, well, why am I even learning about the TCA cycle? Why do I even care about oxaloacetate? Is there a reason this matters? And so by doing that, and this sort of gets back to your step one topic earlier, is it pushes the student to be proficient and competent in multiple, multiple areas. One of the things that we do not know about a graduating medical school in the United States is when they're done, what do they really know? Because there are no guidelines for hypertension knowledge. There are no guidelines for diabetes knowledge. They don't exist. As you said earlier, the step one and step two and step three sort of serve as surrogate markers that if they've gotten a certain percentage right, then they must be smart enough. Right. There's a huge push to get rid of CS2, and that's a whole nother discussion. But at the end of the day, nobody anywhere can guarantee that across the board, our medical students know anything about high blood pressure when they graduate. We assume they do. We assume they do. But they could have guessed correctly on all 14 hypertension questions 
combined on step one and step two. And that's one of my biggest excitements with Universal Notes is this is a system that now will push students to have to verify that they are competent all across the board in these topics. And Universal Notes right now has over 12,000 competencies. It's just going to increase as we continue to, to refine the topics and so forth. But it's reasonable. It's a reasonable expectation uh, for students to have that depth of knowledge before they become practicing physicians. Now, can I ask, can medical school faculty uh, use the, the content from uh, Universal Notes within their lectures on given topics? Do you guys have the ability to partner with institutions to do that? Absolutely. Again, one of the things that comes up when, when faculty review the content in Universal Notes is, well, this section's not as complete as what mine is, and or it's missing this, it's missing that. And of course, when you start that discussion, sure. you're really starting a subjective discussion because there are no standards out there. The, the LCME absolutely has no standards in their accreditation guidelines. They're very general. They're very broad. Um, the AAMC, in response to program directors who were saying, the product you are sending us is not good enough, created their EPAs and the, 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 the standards, 12 standards there for graduating medical students to achieve. But again, those are very general competencies. They should be able to take a history, do a physical. Well, of course they should. Are you kidding me? Yeah, they should be able to critically think through lab values. That Those are all axiomatic things that we all sort of knew 100 years ago with Flexner that a student should be able to do. So it's a subjective conversation to begin with. But what we have found, and one of our first partnerships has been with the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, a wonderful organization that is supplying pediatric surgeons throughout many of the nations in East Africa is that what we are providing for them is an equal access opportunity to basic medical information that we clearly know without a shadow of a doubt is relevant basic science information that directly applies to patient care. And I think for me, if you can argue with me that that basic science information is relevant to improve patient care, you've won me over. If you can show me how that applies to a patient, we're going to put that in our universal notes and that's going to stay there because you convince me it, it matters because it's going to change the way you handle a patient, then I'm for it. If it's in there just for the sake of being in there, I mean, if someone can convince me why I need to know the structure of tyrosine and how that matters then I'll, you know, we can put it in there. I think we have to create medical students who are inquisitive. I think we have to create medical students who are research-minded because if we don't do that, then we're going to stop thinking even more than we've already stopped thinking. So when we create universal notes, a lot of what we want to do as well is for these students to be able to challenge themselves to think about patterns of presentations and patterns of diseases and in some of the cell and molecular biology, which agreed may not be as clear at how to apply to a patient directly, but we want them to be at least thinking about those mechanisms too. The, the long-winded answer is yes, we can work with faculty, we can work with them to be that material for their courses with the understanding that we'll probably end up agreeing to disagree on what, what should or should not be in the topics. 
but at least to partner in fighting the algorithmization of uh, medical thinking that may not produce as good an end product uh, at the end of four years of undergraduate medical education than otherwise could be? Without a question. I mean, one of the concepts that we think about that we haven't promulgated, but it's one that we think about a lot that we're, we're still chewing through is creating a universally trained physician. And what that means to us is, you know, this is a medical student that the public would recognize as a student who has been put through the paces of competencies for everything that is deemed essential for them to know before they graduate. We're, we're not guessing they know it based on the results of a 250 on step one. We know they because they've had to demonstrate it. They've had to answer questions. They've had to give oral presentations to their attending physicians who are board certified. I mean, there's just a whole laundry list of proof that would go in behind um, this knowledge. And I think that, to me, is the future of medical education. We talk about competency-based stuff all the time, but surprisingly, I don't think we have achieved it yet in the sense that um, a lot of med schools will say, well, you know, it takes a lot of time to sit there and listen to a student do an H&P. That is correct. That is what a medical school is designed to do. You have to vet your students and you have to know how they communicate. You have to know how they touch patients. You, I mean, you have to, yes, that, yes, you have to actually sit there as a fly in the wall or through a video and watch them because that's the only way. The only way I know whether a student knows anything clinically, and Patrick, I, I know you know this with working with medical students, is you have them go in and see a patient, and they come out and they present to you. And you have to sit there. And you sit there and you listen. But at that point, you, you, you learn. Does the student know how to take a history? Does the student know the right questions to ask? Did the student perform anything close to a good exam? And then then the most important piece of that whole interaction is, can they take the data that they have obtained and they, can they tell you something intelligible that about what they think is going on? And that's the tough part. For the student listeners, you guys, thank you. I appreciate it. For one lucky winner who leaves a review on iTunes and sends us a screenshot at info at insidetheboards.com, you will be entered to win three months of free access to My Universal Notes. So head over to myuniversalnotes.com. Thank you, Aaron, so much for your time on the program. My pleasure. Music for this week's show is brought to you by Anthony J. Sanders. The track is Wild Things off his 2015 album Fear Mint Volume 2. You can find him on Spotify or check him out at anthonyjsanders.bandcamp.com or follow him on Twitter at anthonyjsanders or facebook.com slash anthonyjsanders. Thanks, Anthony, for letting us use the tune. And also check out his band The Island of Misfit Toys at tiont.bandcamp.com. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Exam, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical Licensing Exam, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, or National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of their respective trademark owners. Content discussed during this program is the property of Inside the Boards, the attributed trademark owner, and may not be re- 
produced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.